Welcome everyone back to Kingdom 101. I want to wish you a happy new year for 2018. Not only those who are here, but those who are listening in, we wish you a happy new year. And thank you for joining us as we resume Kingdom 101. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to lead us and we'll get into this evening's teaching. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for bringing us back here. Thank you for being with us, seeing us through a year that's gone by and even going before us in this new year. And Lord, we want to commit this session to you. As always, Holy Spirit, we ask that you will teach us. You will open our eyes, Lord. You will open our ears. And Lord, you will open our hearts also so that you will lay within it that which you would bring forth that will bring you glory and bring you praise. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're still in the section of Matthew chapter 8 and 9. If you remember the past teachings, these two chapters summarize and give you an overview of 10 miracles that Jesus performed. And in between, we find some discipleship footnotes. Let's not forget Matthew's intent. Matthew wants to show that Jesus demonstrates the power and the authority of the king as the Messiah as well as of his kingdom. Just before that would be the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not just teach it, it does not remain just theoretical, although it was full of authority. He performs it, he demonstrates it, and he shows what true power and authority is all about. And so this teaching, we will continue our expository journey with Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Reading from the New King James Version, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. If you remember in the last teaching entitled Go and Learn, Jesus addressed the Pharisees' wrong understanding about holiness. The Pharisees were, were upset that Jesus was feasting with sinners, and Jesus addressed that and he asked them, Why don't you go back and learn? Go and study some more. Huh? You guys are Pharisees, you are leaders. Go and learn what it means when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But for this teaching, as we have just read, we see another group that has taken issue with Jesus' feasting. And as we unpack this, I looked at this passage and I realized that we can structure it in this way. I'm going to show you that they come with a complaint. They ask Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? And in response, Jesus asks a counter question. Why should they fast? Right? They come with a complaint, Jesus counters it, and then Jesus gives a condition. Oh, but don't worry, there will come a time when they will fast. But he doesn't just say that, he gives also a caution, and he says, but you must be careful when you fast, careful how you fast. 
And later on, we will complete the whole thing with some practical applications and points about fasting, and I hope that will be useful for you. And it's based on a conviction that we must have. So this is a roadmap for you, a complaint, a counter-question, a condition that must be fulfilled, a caution that we must take note of, and also a conviction that we must have. Point number one, the complaint. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often and your disciples do not fast? Firstly, let's look at the disciples of John. They fasted because John the Baptist, he was known for an ascetic lifestyle, a very strict regime of a diet and a holiness code. John himself, together with his disciples, they were known to separate themselves from the main community. Now, there was a group in those days called the Essenes. They would move themselves away from the main people, the society, because they want to be separated, to be holy. They don't want to be tainted or to be influenced by the worldliness or the corruption that would have been there. Now, we're not sure whether John the Baptist, together with his group, were they a part of this group called the Essenes. But we know that they were very, very strict. You know, John himself, you know how he dressed, right? Camel's hair, leather belt, eating only locusts and honey, wild stuff. And it was a very, very strict thing for him. Now the disciples come to Jesus, and it seems that there is also this rivalry maybe between um, disciples. Remember, some of the disciples of John actually came to, to him and says, in one section, right, hey, look at it, you know, your, all your disciples are now following Jesus. To them, they may have felt that we're losing people over to Jesus. And now to make things worse, after these guys go over to Jesus, Ayo, we have to fast. But how come your people are not fasting? How terrible can that be, right? And so they were taking issue with that. Now possibly there could be another reason. Their leader, John, if you remember now, he was in prison. He was already arrested at this time. I mean, this is no time to be partying. I mean, come on, Jesus. This is the guy who baptized you, you know. This is your cousin, you know. He's in prison, and here you are merrymaking. Shouldn't you at least be fasting? Why are your disciples not fasting? These could have been the reasons, and we're not sure, but these could be some of the context that we can consider. There's another group called the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they fast often. Now, according to the law... All they needed to do was, during the time of Yom Kippur, leading up to the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, you can read this. They would fast to prepare for this feast and for this day and this time. Now, that's all the law said to fast. Nowhere else do you find in the Mosaic Covenant about fasting. Now, this would surprise us because we would think that they fasted because of the law. No, it was after the exile when they came back or during the exile in Zechariah, we would see that they fasted all through that 70 years. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19, we are told. They fasted on the fourth month, fifth, seventh, and also the tenth month. Why? Because perhaps they were repenting, they were mournful, they were praying for a time that they can get back into the land. Was it required of them of the law? It doesn't say that. At the same time now, after that, when they come back into the land, the Pharisees added something on to say, no, no, we've got to put a coat for ourselves. They began to fast twice a week, on a Monday as well as on a Thursday. And so that was their routine and that was what they did. 
Now, the Pharisees were like the disciples of John. Later on, you will find in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 onwards, Jesus says of them that they look at John and they say, well, John didn't eat and didn't drink, but this guy has a demon. But Jesus was a party guy. Oh, but he's a drunkard and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors. And so, don't eat also wrong. Eat also wrong. So when you look at this context, isn't it interesting? I mean, we can be like the, the disciples of John. We can also be like the Pharisees. We like to look at the common outward indicators of holiness. And for some people, holiness to them would mean you cannot eat with sinful people. You cannot associate with those who are questionable. And we already addressed this in the previous teaching. On the other extreme, oh, if you are holy, then you must be very religious through the practices. Oh, you must be praying how many times, you know? You must be praying for how long? Oh, you must be fasting, and you must let people see that you are fasting, otherwise people don't know. And then you must give, you know, so these are religious practices. Now, are these things bad? No, they're not bad. But they have taken it to such an extreme that they began to judge other people by their own styles and their own preferences of what they want to do. And so, you can't blame them. We tend to be like that. They come to Jesus. How come we have to fast? How come Pharisees are fasting? How come your disciples are not fasting? Jesus was very quick. He was asked a question. He counters with another question. And this is very rabbinic in style. This is how they would discourse with one another. They don't give a straight answer. And they give a question so that it would make you think and it would make you ponder. And so if any of you would be in a teaching ministry, if you are in a mentoring or a coaching uh, type of a situation, this is a good style to learn, right? Sometimes people will ask you and you can ask them to reveal what actually they are thinking or to make them ponder a little bit more. So Jesus asks a counter question. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, he's saying, look, don't you know what a celebration is about? Do you understand what this wedding is about? If you are Jewish, and they were, a wedding would last like seven days. It's a time of, of joy. It's a time of celebration. At a wedding, everyone, everyone, everyone is expected to participate fully with the couple. And you know that wedding celebrations take precedence even over certain religious obligations. In other words, when there's a wedding celebration, they are permitted to stop that obligation first, celebrate with everyone, and then go back to that obligation. So important is betrothal and wedding uh, in a Jewish community or in God's eyes that in Deuteronomy actually says, are we going to war? Yes, we are. How, which of you just got a girlfriend that you're going to, not only a girlfriend, a wife that you're betrothed to this woman. Now, you go back. You don't fight this war yet because you've got to take her as a wife, you see? And that's how important a wedding celebration would be for the people of God. So Jesus was asking this, don't you understand this? It's like, hello, a wedding celebration, everyone celebrates. Now, why did he pick this picture? Because he knew that when he said bridegroom, the disciples of John would be very familiar with this one phrase. 
John himself declared of Jesus, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. These were the words of, of, of their leader, right? But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Well, this is really sharp of Jesus, isn't it, right? He's telling them, hello, don't you remember? You were saying some of the disciples are now coming over to Jesus. And John is saying, look, don't you know, this is the bridegroom. And he's here, and I am now rejoicing. Jesus says, hello, I am that bridegroom. I'm the same one. Hello, I'm the one. And if I'm here, you should be celebrating also. The Pharisees would also understand this. Why? Because it is a Jewish metaphor for God. Because in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. You read on in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Well, I mean, Jesus, I mean, it's Jesus, right? double edged, right? One shot, right? he hit two persons. Two groups of people. The disciples of John is like, oh yeah, you are the bridegroom. And they understand Jewish metaphor. But the Pharisees who understand the word even better than anyone else is like, what are you trying to say? Are you saying you are God? And if you go through Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we've gone through these in our past teachings. We call this a Christological claim by Jesus. He's saying and revealing to the people, I am God. I am the Messiah, the Messiah who is God. I am that person. We went through this. The title's like Son of Man. That's God. That's the Messiah who will come. Who can this be that even the winds and the waves obey Him? Only God controls the elements and the waves would obey. What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? You are God. Jesus proclaims the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive except God? I am the bridegroom. I am the husband. I am the one who is here. I'm with you. It's time for a celebration because God has come to be with you as He promised to be with you. One counter question. And if the people knew their scriptures and they understood what Jesus was saying, they would have unpacked it just like that. But don't miss that phrase, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? Friends of the bridegroom. An interesting discovery in English, we call it, we wrote that friends, and some translations would say the guests of the bridegroom. But do you know that the original Greek, the word there, it actually is huios. Now if you know huios, huios would be translated children. The children of the bridegroom is like, huh? Why children of the bridegroom? Haven't get married, how can I have children? And the expression child or children, according to this commentator, like that of father, is a form of speech designed to show some relation between the person to whom it is applied and certain qualities existing in that person or certain circumstances connected with him. These qualities or circumstances being the result of that relationship. Now, don't miss this word. It's about relationship. 
They are called the children of the bridegroom because they have a relationship. They share something with the bridegroom. And I want you to think of a wedding or maybe a celebration that you have had to go out of obligation. You don't really know the couple very well, right? Sometimes we get invited to weddings like that. You go, you're happy, you, you clap, and you sort of rejoice with them. But it's different, isn't it? But when you know the bridegroom, when you know the bride, and when you have journeyed with them and there's a relationship, when they get married and you're invited, you rejoice differently, is it not? You see, and this is what is important for us to see down here. It's not just us that would say, oh, yay, we are invited to the wedding feast. Do we have that relationship with Jesus? Do we have the relationship with the bridegroom? Because if we do, we will know how to rejoice. We don't just go there by obligation. We don't just do things out of obligation. We don't participate because we have been coerced to. We will participate fully, praise the Lord. And so with one counter question, Jesus is really asking, let me paraphrase this for you. What have you been fasting for, guys? What have, no, you've been fasting. I'm not saying it's bad, but what have you been fasting for? Haven't you been fasting forward? Isn't your fast about looking forward to a time where the Messiah will come, that God will be with you, that the bridegroom will be here? Your, your title of your fast would be fast forward, as this title of this teaching would be also. You have been looking forward to that day. Hello, that day has come. That day has come. And if you know what you have been fasting for, if you know who is here, I'm the king who is here, that the kingdom is near you. It is a new season. This is not the time to mourn. This is the time to celebrate. They brought a complaint to Jesus. Jesus responded with a counter question that caused them to ponder and even to think. But he didn't stop there. He moved on to declare a condition in the second part of verse 15. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. He says there's a condition. Now is not the time to be fasting. Now is the time to be celebrating and rejoicing the bridegroom is with you. But here's the condition. One day the bridegroom will be taken away. And the word taken away in the Greek is... A pyro, which means to be snatched away, almost like suddenly. To be just taken away, snatched away. And some commentators believe that this was referring to the time that Jesus would have been crucified and buried and he would have died. And the bridegroom was, is taken away. Some other commentators, and I agree with the latter view, that this referred to the ascension. And do you remember? The disciples were all there. And Jesus was taken up in a cloud just like that. And the same way, we also one day will be taken away. Amen? And so it, this is that same picture. That condition has been fulfilled. And it is now time to fast again. This is the condition that Jesus was sharing with the people. But we've got to ask ourselves this question then. Is the bridegroom with us or is he not with us? You see, we can get out of this by saying, oh, but Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us, so He's always with us, so we don't need to fast. Praise the Lord. But at the same time, you know that physically He's not here with us. 
And one day He says He will return again. And just like the people of old, we now have a reason to fast forward. We are fasting forward just like they did. But we fast with a different perspective because we know that He's already come. He's already accomplished all He needed to do. And so our fasting forward is of a very, very different nature. And so I submit to you, the question is not if Christians should fast, but how Christians are to fast. Did you get this? Right? The question is not, oh, should we fast or not? That's not the question because the condition has been fulfilled. The correct question to ask is, how Christians are to fast? Jesus goes on and addresses this. He talks about the garment, and He talks about new wine, old wine, new wineskins, and old wineskins. He makes a comparison between the old and the new, and the new and the old. And we may have different ideas of what He was referring to, or what this teaching is all about. And so let's Let's unpack this a little bit for ourselves. But before we talk about what it is, I think it's good to define for ourselves what it is not. What the old is not, what the new is not, what this old and new thing is not talking about. The old and new, I again submit to you, has nothing to do with uh, contemporary songs versus hymns. Okay, it's not about... Oh, new means we must sing the contemporary songs and repeat it 300 times versus the hymns that have 10 verses which we get tired of and we're off anyway. It has nothing to do with the, whether you play a synthesizer or a pipe organ. Totally nothing. Okay? It's nothing to do with fancy PowerPoints or whether you sing from songbooks or hymnals. Nothing to do with flashy lights or candlelights. Nothing to do with whether you wear skinny jeans or whether you wear a pinstripe suit. Nothing to do with whether you sit on cushioned chairs or you prefer the wooden pews. Nothing to do with the young people versus the old people. Nothing to do with the millennials versus the perennials. Are we agreed on that? Right? The old and new has nothing to do with all these things. It is not about new things or new ways, new methods versus old things, old ways, old methods. Why is this important to remember? Because we tend to, in this world, gravitate and like new things all the time, right? The new gizmos, the new technologies. And so we tend to think, oh, to innovate things means this is what Jesus is talking about. So if you don't do it this way, you are an old wineskin. I don't think Jesus was referring to this at all. Nothing to do with technology, the latest app, or the software version. Nothing at all. It's not about this. It's also definitely not about being progressive. You know, today there's this word called being progressive. And Christians also like to be called progressives where they feel that they have progressed, they have improved, they are now seeking new interpretations of the Bible through different lenses and through different worldviews. Now, can I tell you that's very dangerous? Because what's happening now is we are redefining biblical love, biblical grace. We are redefining gender, we are redefining marriages, so on and so forth, right? We are coining new words to be used. We want to be as relevant as we can to the world outside. So 
because we want to be seen as cool and hip. And so we borrow their words and we apply it to our ministry. And just this week, certain words have one word has especially come up through on Facebook, right? Where we are now trying to describe ministry as sexy. We use the word sexy. What has sexy got to do with anything about serving God and being faithful to God? And yet, we like to use these terms so that we are trying to reach out to the people. I don't know if that's correct. Okay, I don't think so. I might as well just tell you that. So don't try to be a progressive. In fact, if you try to be progressive, you actually regress. There's nothing new under the sun. We are beginning to disregard doctrine. I went to teach in one place, and just before um, the worship started, the leader came to me, well-intentioned, good meaning, and, and he, she said, you know, you just preach, okay, you got this time and all that, but, but please don't touch on doctrinal stuff. And I said, oh, okay. Um, and I was thinking to myself, so doctrine not important. Nah. You know, for the sake of keeping people together, don't talk about doctrine. Now you think about that. Now I understand where she was coming from. I'm not blaming her, okay? But if we are not careful in the church when we don't talk doctrine anymore, what would be your handles? What would be your foundation? We prefer more emotional, right? More feelings-based type of things, and we call it led by the Spirit. Okay, let's be careful. We like words like tolerance, um, pluralism, universalism, political correctness. The latest update is this lady called Miss Oprah Winfrey, and she has just given a Hollywood speech that everyone is raving about, including Christians. And she comes up with one line, and that's all I'm going to say. You can debate whether she, she gave a good speech or not from whichever angle. And the one line that she was trying to encourage everyone to do is to tell your truth. To tell your truth. You've got to make sure that you tell your truth. Now, if you just listen to it, it's like, yeah, sounds correct because we're all standing for the truth. But the question is, when did it become your truth? It's either the truth or it's not the truth. You don't get to define your truth or his truth or her truth. You see, but we're trying to redefine all these words nowadays and we call it progressive and we're saying now, even as Christians, we need to be like that. Otherwise, you're archaic and nobody wants to come to church. No one will love your Jesus. Let it sink in for a while. Okay, the old and new, it's not about these things. If we don't understand, we are going to go so far off track. Let us be convinced that God's old, and I repeat, old and ancient paths are always timeless. It's funny, right? It's such a contradiction in terms. It's old, but it's timeless. And they are still the best ways. We mustn't ever, ever forget this. You can change your chairs, you can change your slides, you can change your methods, but God's ways will always be God's ways. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, let's look at what old and new actually refers to. I believe it's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. Because in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 to 13, the writer of Hebrews expands on this and explains to the people of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. That's the old covenant. Now what is being obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now it's vanishing away. It hasn't gone away immediately. And that's why you have this, this uncomfortable position of the old and new still down there. But it's obsolete and it's going away. Please note that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. Now that's quite profound, right? <laughs> note that the new covenant is made with whom? The house of Israel and the house of Judah is made to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. The new covenant mediated through Jesus replaces the old covenant made at Sinai through Moses. So whenever you see old covenant, you must remember it's called the Mosaic covenant. That's the one with the Ten Commandments and all. But the new covenant was mediated when Jesus came and it replaces that old covenant. Here comes a question you must ask. Then what about the Gentiles? Because this was made with the people of God. What about the Gentiles? Let me give you good news. When we believed, we plugged in, straight in, into the promise of the covenant made with Abraham. We get to enjoy a shortcut. I say praise the Lord. Isn't that good news? When we believe, we didn't believe into this old covenant. It was never made with us. Is that correct? It was made with the people of Israel. When we believed, we went straight to the covenant made with Abraham. We get to enjoy the promise that was made with Abraham. This promise stands forever. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That which was made, Genesis chapter Chapter what? Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, right? You, you read that and you understand it. But that was before the law was given, I know some people will say. So yay, we don't have to follow the law anymore. We are now under grace. Not so fast. Okay, not so fast. Hang in there with me. Because in Genesis, chapter 26, verse 5, is that still before the law was given? It was, right? It says this, Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now tell me, was the law given yet? Well, not in the sense of the two stone tablets, but was the law already made known? Yes. Why? Because God's promises and covenants will always come with His laws. His laws are His ways. There's no way you can remove that. There are still God's ways that we follow because His laws are consistent, holy, just, and good. It's the way we approach the law that is the problem. And that's why when Jesus comes, we get to learn from Him. Why? Because He is full of grace and He's full of truth. At the same time, what's the place of the old covenant for us? We look at how Israel made their mistakes and we learn from them. You don't look at how they make their mistakes and you commit the same mistakes. Because it's very easy to fall into the same trap. Don't ever say, if I was Israel, I will never do it. Oh, no. If I was Adam, I would never have... No, 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 no. Right? We all have the same propensity to do that. So never, never say that. 
But what I'm trying to show you here is that we pluck straight into the promises of Abraham. And although God made that unilaterally, He's still saying, Abraham, I've given you these promises. Now follow my ways. You've got to walk my ways. And in that relationship, God begins to show Abraham what His commandments are. But because they had a relationship, Abraham believed God and continued to walk God's ways. You see, the old and the new, it's about wanting to live a new Christian kingdom life as opposed to an old Judaistic structure with the old mindsets. That is what the old and new is all about. You have to understand what the Spirit of the Lord is so that you can enjoy true freedom and liberty in the kingdom of God. Don't mix the new covenant and the old covenant. Remember this one line. Don't mix the old covenant, the new covenant, new covenant with old covenant. It will not work. You will be so frustrated. Now we are ready to ask ourselves then, what is Jesus cautioning us about? What is old covenant fasting and what is new covenant fasting? Now in the old, it is normally associated with a time of crisis, right? In the Old Testament where you see this, when there's crisis, they will fast. When there's loss, there's repentance, there's mourning, whether personal, corporate, or national, they, they, will, they will like cry out, you know, like what? Maybe like like that, very putting, you know. God, will you hear me pleading, you know? And it's like, wow, very bad, very tough, right? But do you realize that in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's ours in Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not that we don't repent and we're not sorry for our sins. Yes, Lord, if I've messed up, Lord, please forgive me. But you know where the joy is? Jesus has done it for us. You see that? You know, where's my forgiveness? It's not in the fasting. The forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. Where's the sacrifice? It's not in my, oh, yo, I, I, I sacrificed one meal, you know. God, you better forgive me. No, Jesus is the sacrifice. You see, everything in the new covenant is Jesus Christ. And so whilst we are sorry that we have hurt God or we have upset God or we have veered, very quickly, I say this again, when you have repentance, restoration is a promise. Right? But don't take His grace in vain. Understand what cost that. It was His life given for all of us. The new covenant fasting is very different from the old covenant one. And I hope you catch this. Okay, it's a fine line sometimes and we can miss it so easily. It's very tempting to regard and to employ fasting as a means to get closer to God. And there are merits to, try, uh, to, to believe that. We think fasting will get us onto His good side. We think fasting will obtain His favor and to get Him to answer. Right? Now, if you're not careful, if you go to another extreme, it's just a hunger strike that God, you better talk to me. Huh? It's very tempting. It's very easy to slip into that position. But do you know that your position with God is through joyful association with Jesus Christ? You must understand that. You must remember that. All right? You go to the Father through Jesus Christ. And in that, there's great reason to rejoice and to say, praise the Lord. You get the favor because of Jesus. You get the Father's ear because of Jesus. 
Do you understand? And you want to live right and so on, but don't reduce fasting into that mechanism that would be all covenant. The people of God missed the heart of the matter. Fasting became ritualistic. And after a while, fasting had no benefit to anyone else, maybe only to the person who was fasting because he felt that he was very good. That's what fasting was reduced to. It became an outward show of piety. And it was a badge of honor, a badge of holiness to say, you see, I fast so long there. You see how gaunt I am. You see, I'm so putting. It became a badge of honor so that other people can be impressed. It became an outward display with no personal change. There was no transformation. There was no justice, no mercy, no love, no compassion. Isaiah 58, God says, is this the fast I've chosen for you? When you fasted, you're, you're still abusing your, your slaves and your servants and so on. When you fasted, you were still not practicing mercy. There was no righteousness. You fast for what? It became, well, the fast was a fast. It was no longer directed at God. They were no longer aligned with the heartbeat or the purposes of God. God had to ask them in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, did you really fast for me? And he asked one more time, for me? That's all covenant, you understand? Because once they start to practice it, it became legalistic, it became a show for them to be impressive. Over time, it became institutionalized. It's just something that you do. You don't question it. You just do it because a good Jew is supposed to do that. If you want to be a Pharisee, even more. And you know, that's a warning for all of us. Many things can start out right and good, but can end up wrong if we are not careful. You can start new covenant, you can end up old covenant. And that's a warning for us. That's why Jesus is saying with these illustrations, watch out, watch out. Don't mix the old with the new. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. You don't try to mix these two things together. I like the word patch. The word patch actually is pleroma, which means um, to make full. A fullness. To fill something up. It's the same root word that is used when we say to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if the new covenant is all about Jesus and all about the Holy Spirit moving in us, if you're trying to fill someone with the Holy Spirit, trying to fill a place with the Holy Spirit, if you're allow, wanting them to move in the things of the Holy Spirit, the old covenant will choke it. It cannot move. You don't try to fill something up when that something is refusing to accept it. If you do that, when the piece of uh, unstrung cloth, when you wash it, it will shrink, it will pull and things are going to go crazy, it will pull away, it will tear. The tear is made worse. And the word tear is from the Greek schisma, where we get the word schism. I want you to ponder this for a while. Could this be the reason there are so many schisms in the body of Christ? Because we are mixing old and new together. We, are, we can't get our act together. We can't understand what is the thing of the Spirit and what's the thing of the old covenant. And we're trying to juxtapose one on top of the other. We are tearing the body apart. 
Not easy, I can understand. But perhaps we've got to meditate on this to say, Lord, will you help us? Don't put a patch over to try and fix something. Don't cover up. Don't paint over. It will not work. Jesus says, don't try to patch up the old garment. What you need is a new garment. Praise the Lord. Shopping time. Don't try and patch up. That's it, gone. It's obsolete. It, it's vanishing. You need this new garment. And isn't it great that he talks about garments? Because we have been clothed with the garment of righteousness in Christ. We have been clothed in Christ. That's the new garment we have. The garment that we have is the garment of gladness and of joy. Amen. Right? We, we put off the garments of mourning and we put on the oil of gladness. This is the new garment that we are to have. The old garment is obsolete, is done away with, it's gone. Don't even donate it to Salvation Army. Nobody wants the old covenant anymore. Don't mix. The old cannot mix with the new. He goes on with the second illustration. Now, do they put new wine into old wineskins? Or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined. But this is what you must do. You must put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. In biblical imagery, the new wine always represents the fullness of the messianic age. The true ways of the kingdom. Old wineskins, if you understand, they're they hard and, and inflexible. After a while, you know, it's been stretched, it's been moved about, and it dries up. But the new wine is still fermenting. It's still fermenting. It has not stabilized yet. It's volatile. You don't know what's going to happen. When you put a new wine into these hardened encasements or containers, and when the new wine ferments and bubbles, the old wineskins cannot accommodate and it will burst, and everything will spill, and it's worse. It's very, very messy. And nobody's happy. The old wine skin is not happy. The new wine is not happy. Those who like the old wine is not happy. Everybody is upset. In a parallel in Luke, he actually says, I know we talk about new wine, but people tend to prefer the old wine. They don't like the new wine. They like the old wine. More mellow, more, more robust, more, more stable. You see, but the kingdom of God is not like that. You understand? It, it just goes anywhere it wants to go. God wants to do anything. He will move. But I prefer the old wine. Can I say something? The new wine will be an acquired taste. Because when you are used to something, when you try something new, you go, Bleh. you know, it's like, Ugh, I, I, it doesn't sit well with me. I, I challenge you, if, if you have been drinking coffee with sugar, now you try and drink kopi kosong. Kopi or kosong, or kopi or siu thai, that means less sugar. Already, the moment you take one sip, you go, hey, you, how to drink this? Right? Because you are used to a certain taste, you now need to acquire a taste for what is new and what is beneficial and what is good for you. The old wineskins, nobody wants to be an old wineskin. How many of you, I say, put up a hand if you want to be an old wineskin, you'll put up a hand. Nobody wants. And even if you are an old wineskin, you'll never admit it. Amen? Right? Why? Because we are unaware when we've become old wineskins. It's not an overnight thing. It's, it's one day you wake up and you go like, oh, yo, how come like that one? Huh? huh? But the moment we institutionalize the kingdom, the moment we rely on a system or a structure more than the spirit, the moment we find ourselves reminiscing about past glories and past successes, oh, you be careful already. Okay, careful, huh? 
Because you're like the good old days. Right? God loves the good old days, but He wants to do something new. So you cannot get into an old wineskin mode, but the moment you notice these things, be careful. But like I said, it's not throwing out God's old ancient paths. Those are always that the principles are timeless. But if you find yourself doing church, getting into a routine, same old, same old. Old wineskin. Fine line? Very fine line. Only you will know. But the new covenant thinking and the new covenant living is only possible with new creations and new mindsets. Let me show you a picture here. I'll describe it for those who are listening in. Wineskins are made from animal bodies. So what you're seeing there is an animal carcass stripped, of course, inside is emptied, hollowed out drying there, waiting to be used. Chop up the head, chop up the legs, and there you have it. It's made from animal bodies. As I look at this picture, I want to declare something to all of us. There was a lamb who died on our behalf. There was a lamb who died on our behalf. And that lamb shows us, and he would be the new wineskin that we will take on. Because when we believe in Jesus, we believe into him. You see, we are not the ones that we depend on. I don't sit here and say, I want to be a new wineskin. I want to be a new wineskin. It will never happen. But when I take on Jesus, and I don't depend on myself, I depend on him to be a new creation. There's no way you can create yourself. Only in Christ can you be a new creation. Amen. And we are new creations in Jesus Christ. He has died for us. He contains the new wine. And He will show us what it means to be a new wineskin. The only way to be a new wineskin and to stay new is to be that new creation in Christ and to have new mindsets. That's why Paul keeps saying, don't be conformed to the patent of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We have died with Christ. We have been raised to new life. See, it's no longer us. So if you want to live new covenant, you've got to remember Jesus. You've got to keep remembering Jesus. That's why Jesus says, look, I've come. You've got to rejoice. I've done the hard work for you. And now you've got to do some hard work, but I'm enabling you that you can do the hard work. Otherwise, you're doing it all by yourself. You can live the kingdom life. You can live the new covenant. Don't mix the old with the new. I love the teachings of Jesus. When you unpack it, it's like, wow, there are just so many things in there. They bring a complaint. He gives a counter. He sets a condition. Now he teaches them all the cautions. He said, please, please, when you have to fast and you're going to be doing that, I know, do it in the right way. It has to be a new covenant way. Now we've got to look at some practical applications and some points. Conviction. As with all things, fasting is also based on faith. Conviction is another word for faith. Are you convicted? Do you believe this? Is this what faith says? Do you believe all that God has said to you? And this conviction is important for us. Otherwise, you can go through a teaching on fasting and that will all be what it remains, a teaching. Number one, are you convicted that it is relevant? You have to be convinced. You, you must believe that it is relevant. Jesus was not against fasting. 
He fasted in the wilderness 40 days. After that Sermon on the Mount, he taught about fasting. If he was against fasting, immediately he would say, don't fast. No need to fast anymore. I fast can already. You don't need to fast. He is not against the fasting. What he is against is the spiritual showmanship. Check your heart. Don't go around with a long face. Moody, moody when you fast. This is not the right way to fast. Is it relevant? Yes, it is. I've given you passages in the New Testament. Peter fasted. The early church in Antioch fasted. Paul fasted. He fasted a lot of times. Paul instructed married couples for a while. If you need to seek God together, fast. Right? So these are New Testament verses about fasting. You need to be convicted that fasting is relevant for you before you would even consider it. Secondly, fasting is voluntary. No one can force you to fast. You can fast by obligation and you can still waste that entire effort. You can join a corporate fast and still not fast correctly. Right? Nobody can make you fast. I can just withhold food from you, but that's just denying you of, of a nice meal. That's all. Only you can decide when to fast, how you want to fast, and how long you want to fast. Now, fine. People can say, let's do a 40-day. Fine. Let's do a 21 days. Let's do a 10. That's true. doesn't matter to me. Understand what the new covenant is. Know why you are fasting. I need to be convicted that it's a personal decision, totally voluntary. If not, you go through the motion, you get caught in legalism of fasting, you miss the heart, and after you feel very good about yourself, you have already gone into the wrong area. Thirdly, fasting is a commitment. Who wants to say amen? I've always wondered this English word fast. Why, why does it mean to abstain from food. How, how is the word fast related to that line to abstain from food? I, I know what it means. I know you know what it means, right? We fast from food and some people hear this will say we well, can eat fast food. <laughs> and so I did a little bit of a word study which is always interesting. The word fast comes from a Germanic root that means solid, firm, steady. And an English word that is derived from it, of course, we get the word fast. And that's why we have this word, to hold fast. When we say to hold fast, it means to hold steady or to be securely anchored, right? You know, to hold on to something firmly, to be steady. We also know in English that fast means speed, right? To, to move quickly or to do something quickly. Now, if you understand the root meaning, then you get the idea. Why do you want to do something quickly? Because we want to get to the destination. We want to achieve, we want to complete something at a certain time and we are determined to do that. You see that? That determination and commitment begins to show up. We are solidly determined and committed to finish that. And that's why we get the word fast. So when you extend that to abstinence from food, it means that we hold fast to a religious or a dietary commitment. Can you see this? There is something that's solid down there. Your commitment is saying, I'm going to hold fast to this because I believe that this is important. I believe that it is relevant. I believe that there will be benefit and I believe that it is something that I need to be doing. 
Fasting requires commitment, but your commitment is based on conviction. Not just being committed not to eat, but being committed to something more than just the benefits of weight loss and being able to fit into your old genes. Right? It's a, it's a commitment to a greater cause of the kingdom. You are fasting forward. You see? This is the commitment. You say, Lord, I know you are coming. And because you're coming, I'm rejoicing even when I'm fasting. And I'm fasting forward for you and for your kingdom. The focus has always been Jesus and the kingdom. It has always been like that. Once you understand these first three points, you begin to move to the fourth one because fasting is participation. Jesus invites us to, to participate in the things of the kingdom. He says, I'm going, but I'm leaving each of you work to do. Now, how do we know what this is all about? What's the kingdom all about? What is God doing? How is He moving? Where's my part? How do I fit in? Where do I fit in? What's my assignment? How do I know? Now, I know many people are asking these kind of questions. May I invite you to fast forward to your assignments? Right? As you fast and you're seeking the Lord, you are aligning with His purposes. You are participating. You're saying, Lord, I'm interested. And I'll shut out all voices. I will shut out all things because I want to hear from you. You are aligning that you can participate. And then as you align, you receive assignments and you know that you cannot do this on your own strength. Hence, more reason to be fasting before the Lord. Fasting is also empowerment. I can't do this on my own. I tell you, if you're not moving on a real kingdom assignment from the Lord, many times we will still do things on our own. We can hack it. We can wing it. And if you've been winging it for too long without any fasting, can I quietly just gently say, we may have been doing it on our own strength. See, my tendency is the way of the flesh, but the kingdom is the way of the spirit. The kingdom is upside down. And it is true, my fasting, my flesh becomes weak, but the spirit man becomes strong. My dependence is, is not on myself, but my dependence is on him. In the flesh, I'll be kanchong, I'll be anxious, I'll be fretting, you know, as I'm trying to do what God tells me to do. But in the spirit, I know the battle belongs to him. I'm participating and I'm empowered to move with him. But I need to be convicted, you see. I need to be convicted enough that it is not my talents, my abilities, my intelligence, my riches, my whatever at all. It has to be the kingdom of God. It's beyond me. And the way to tap into divine empowerment and spiritual resources is through fasting and prayer. There's no other way. And finally, fasting is anticipation. What am I doing all these things for? We come back to the same question. So you ask yourself, Am I looking forward to the Lord's return? Yes, fast forward. Do I want to be ready for His return? Yes, then get on assignment, fast forward. Will I be ready to give an account when He returns? Yes, I want to be like that. But to give account, I must have an assignment first. I must know, right? But to know my assignment, I must be aligned first. To be aligned, I need to get rid of all the things that de-align me and misalign me, right? And so I'm convicted, this is important, I will fast forward. Do you believe it's going to be a great celebration? Yes, the bridegroom will come for his bride. The fasting and the sacrifice will be worth it. 
Because for all eternity, we don't have to fast anymore. We get to party, and it's going to be a great time. And so the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. And we are waiting, we are posturing. And fasting is one of the means that positions us correctly. And so let's conclude. Fast forward. I think by now you know it's not about rushing ahead or getting things done quickly. The people came with a complaint. Jesus gave a counter-question, states a condition, gives the caution. But you see, you need to have the conviction. You need to have the conviction. As you listen to this, it's easy just to say, oh, good teaching, nice teaching, oh, thank you, Lord, new covenant. And you're not the, the least moved that it is relevant for us, that it's voluntary that we posture because Jesus has done it all that it requires commitment because I want to participate, I need the empowerment, and I'm looking with anticipation to the Lord's coming. So as you listen to this, as you look at those words again, I ask you a question. Are you convicted or are you complaining already? Are you almost fast enough after this? No, I don't want to come. I came Kingdom 101. I was going to be encouraged and then they tell me must fast. My Laileo. Good news is Chinese New Year is around the corner. I didn't get to plan these messages. I think it's interesting that we start a new year with a teaching about fasting. And in between festive feastings, by the way, right? How would you like to move forward in this new year? And this relevant, whether it's new year or mid-year or whatever year, right? you, you want to go forward? Yes? May I suggest, would you fast forward? How would you want to get through a challenge? Maybe you're struggling. You need a breakthrough. Maybe you need to know this kingdom assignment. Can I suggest, how about fasting forward? Are you waiting for the return of the bridegroom? Are you preparing for that wedding feast? I think God has a sense of humor. You're hungry now, Ken. Then you eat more at the wedding feast. Let's encourage one another, our keepers. Because I know we need encouragement along the way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just give you praise and thanks for Jesus. He's the King, He's the Messiah, He's our God, He's the Bridegroom that has come for His Bride. And we, the body of Christ, Lord, we are betrothed to this Bridegroom. What a joy, what a celebration, O oh Lord. And even now for just a moment, as it were, the Bridegroom is not with us. And Lord, in that sense, we, we pine for Him because we love Him and we want to be with Him. But at the same time, we know what He has done for us, what He has secured for us. There's only victory, and we are overcomers. And Lord, will You help us to fast forward so that we can be postured for the coming of Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to just lay hold of this and even begin one small step, maybe it's one day, maybe it's three days of fasting forward, will You enable us? Perhaps some here listening in require a breakthrough. Lord, can we rest in you? Will you just sow into this heart, stir in this heart to know that victory has been secured by you? We posture for it and we receive it by fasting. And Lord, will you lead us into a time of alignment so that we can be faithful in our kingdom assignments. We fast forward, O oh Lord. And even on our assignments when the things get difficult and we know that we can't do this by our own strength, Lord, we fast forward because you will empower us in the Spirit. O oh Lord, I pray, Lord, will you lead everyone, Lord, that we can arise and we can do what needs to be done, participating with you 
in the advancement of your kingdom in this time, in this season, and in this hour. And all through, Lord, we thank you. We do it by your grace. We do it not by our own strength. And we do it praising you, glorifying you, and honoring you. Thank you, Jesus. We ask all this in your mighty name. Amen.